0: Welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom. My name is Helen Mully, and the author joining me in your classroom, or wherever you're listening for this episode, is someone who, in her own words, writes books about magic, gods and monsters, mostly. Actually, she started out writing fact books, but these days she says she much prefers making things up, and luckily for us, she is very, very good at it. Welcome to the podcast, Louis Stowell. Hello, thank you very
1: much for having me.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. Now we're going to be talking in some detail about your brilliant Loki books today, but before we do, I'd like to explore that move from nonfiction to fiction with you a little bit, if that's okay. Why did you
1: start out writing fact books? I actually had a job writing fact books. It wasn't the normal thing of being an author. I had a job working for a publisher called Osborne, And it was a little bit like being a journalist in that someone's like, go and write me a book about X, go. (laughs) So you get given a brief um, that you work to. And often it's like, there'll be a series of books that all have, I don't know, 96 pages or whatever it is with a particular number of pictures. So you have to kind of keep that in mind as you're writing. So I ended up doing you know, more or less every topic you can imagine. Except I never wrote a book about dinosaurs. That's the one thing I didn't do. Which is I quite, I'm quite glad of because they keep changing what dinosaurs look like all the time. (laughs) They didn't have feathers, then they had feathers, then they they didn't have feathers again. So I I feel like it's too fast paced for me. Um, But I wrote a lot of books about space, which I really enjoyed, which does change a lot, but weirdly not as much as dinosaurs do. (laughs) Given that, you know, spaceships are supposed to be the future and dinosaurs the past. Um, But... But yeah, I loved really learning the kind of nerdy detail of how spaceships work. I wasn't as interested in the astronomy side. It's more the kind of spaceships and rockets um, and how kind of, I quite enjoyed learning about how different countries work together as well. So kind of, you know, Russia and the United States who are not, let's say on the same side of things, actually managing to collaborate in space. But also just all the little details, like when a, a spent rocket, so one, once a rocket's used up all its fuel, it kind of falls back down to earth again. There's kind of a weird side business of people picking up old rockets where they've landed and selling them on for, for <laughs> like scrap metal. And just all the details about being an astronaut. Um, so I work quite closely with the UK Space Agency and also with NASA, um, just to get those kind of insider details and found myself on the website of transcripts of the Apollo landing so for when when people landed on the moon and they're wonderful because I mean some of them are very boring technical detail of like you know how are the thrusters doing but there's one on Apollo 10 which is my favourite moment in space history which people don't talk about enough um, because it was before the moon landings where the toilet breaks and a poo floats loose and they have this argument on the transcript about whose it was and they're talking about the consistency it's like no mine aren't that sticky it's not mine um so it's this kind of in some ways like very high-tech mission but also they just have very normal problems um and you know arguments about whose job it is to fix it (laughs) and it's in the midst of all this very serious life and death stuff (laughs) that does sound really interesting and exciting
0: and fun i suppose it's a little bit like when the teacher is telling our listeners, right, I want you to write three paragraphs on this subject, go off and research it and, mm. and then write me a piece. Yeah.
1: And you need to do, I don't know, 200 words or however many words it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of working within very specific limits, um, which, you know, definitely is enjoyable in, in lots of ways. But I think moving on to writing my own fiction meant that I, I was the one setting the limits and setting the rules. So
0: what was the idea? The idea that took you from, from writing fact books to order for somebody else to writing your own fiction story?
1: Not a specific idea because I've always written. Um, it was more a matter of finding an idea that someone wanted to pay me for. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think because I, I feel like there's two different things. There's being a writer and there's publishing books and they're, they're very different. And being a writer is something you are as soon as you write. So I've been writing since I was eight years old. So I've always been a writer and just sort of happening on the idea that it just happens that someone is willing to buy is very different. And it's not that the best books get published. It's that the ones that are going to sell get published. Um, so I think as a writer, it's really important to separate your sense of your own craft from, you know, capitalism. So um, <laughs> basically, you know, it's it's knowing that your ideas are valid because they're great stories um and it did take me a long time to realize that and and by the time i'd realized that then someone was willing to b- buy them and put them into book form but actually i think it's important to hold on to that and that idea that creativity is valuable for its own sake and you know storytelling is everywhere and it's in every part of your life you know you're whether you're writing it down or telling your friend a story about what happened things like you know comic timing are really important about when you tell the punchline so i think that sort of storytelling has always been part of my life. Like I always like telling stories of funny things that have happened to me. Normally I change them (laughs) because they're not as funny in real life. (laughs) So you've just got to slightly change the ending. Um, You know, sometimes you can tell from your audience how much they're enjoying it. And then if you're slightly losing them, that's when you add a little twist.
0: (laughs) Which is interesting, isn't it? Because that's something that you can't do
1: in a book. No. No, you can't. You don't know how people are responding. And interestingly, doing a series, so my my Loki books are a series. So I do get feedback in between books. So I was surprised by some of the things people really enjoyed. So um, people got really invested in something called the Loki Virtue Score, which is basically the diaries keeping track of how good he's being or how bad. And I think I initially put it in there because I thought it was funny. <laughs> um, but people were like, oh, no, he's losing points. Oh, no. Um, so it made me kind of get more invested in that side of the story in book two and book three. And also realizing what people's responses to characters are. So I feel like a lot of people have liked Thor a lot more than I do. I'm like, Th- Thor's the enemy. <laughs> but actually, they like him because he's actually a really nice guy. And he doesn't, you know, like, well, mostly anyway, apart from if you're a giant and he's mostly kind of long suffering from Loki's pranks and everything he is so yeah so there is there is a feedback it's just it's very it's like a year later <laughs>
0: <laughs> um i did want to to focus on on the loki books today so so perhaps now's a, a good time mm to start talking about those in more in more depth. And, and actually, for our listeners who haven't discovered the books yet, the second title is being published in August. Mm,
1: it's called A Bad God's Guide to Taking
0: the Blame. Yes. So I've been reading the first one, A Bad God's Guide to Being Good. I think for our listeners who haven't yet discovered it, and I hope they all will discover this book as soon as this podcast is finished, perhaps you could explain a little bit what it's about so so they can understand what we're talking about a little more clearly.
1: Sure. So it's based on Norse mythology. So that is uh, the mythology of the Viking people, basically. You might have done Vikings in school. Oh, very much so. <laughs> so basically, yeah, the people that we kind of loosely call the Vikings. I mean, Vikings was actually more of a job title. It was kind of the people that go out and raids, whereas lots of people were just farmers and stuff. Um, but anyway, we, we talk about them as the Vikings. They you know, they lived, I don't know, a thousand odd years ago. So At one point in time, they they believed in these gods, including Loki and Odin and Thor and Freya and Frigg and Sif. There's lots of them. But these stories were only written down after they stopped believing in them because they, they didn't actually have written language except in the form of runes. Now runes are they are just another alphabet, but you had to carve them on stone or bits of wood, which is really slow. So you wouldn't use it to write a poem. You'd use it to say, you know, Jeff the Viking owes me 10 pounds. Um, or occasionally they wrote kind of curses or spells in, in those letters. So anyway, so we didn't get them written down until the people of the Scandinavian region had become Christians and didn't believe in the gods anymore. So it's sort of an interesting route into the story. So we never really have the, what you might call authentic versions. It's never been written down by the people that believed in it. But I love the the stories that did get written down and they got passed down to me in all kinds of ways um, through different, sort of areas so I loved Lord of the Rings as a child and that's got a lot of Norse mythology in it um, or if you read The Hobbit that has all the dwarves in The Hobbit are actually taken from Norse mythology are they um, not their personalities just the names I didn't know that yeah there's one um one bit of Norse mythology where it's just a list of dwarves names it doesn't say anything about them <laughs> just the names so don't or- talk Orrin and lift all Dorin of those. and yeah yeah Owen and Glorin and I mean I think they were slightly spelled differently in Old Norse <laughs> but um basically the same names so I came to it through Norse through sorry, through Tolkien, also through Wagner. So I, I play the trumpet. So I used to, you know, the Ring Cycle was great. They, which is an opera about basically about Norse myths, but told by sort of through German culture so basically you know kind of if you're in Western Europe you will have got Norse mythology through lots of different channels in your life even if you don't know it whether it's you know the Marvel films or whether it's um, reading I mean I actually did an Usborne book of Norse mythology years ago which was just retelling the stories um, so I took all these Norse myths and um, and I wanted to focus on the character of Loki because I find his stories very funny. He he does things like he turns into a fly and bites someone on an eyelid, he gets his mouth stitched together, he's just always causing trouble. And I think troublemakers are the best characters always. Um I grew up on Dennis the Menace, who his hair is modelled on. <laughs> and I really, I really wanted to see what would happen if you basically took him out of the myths and put him into our, our world. And basically, so because Loki's always doing bad things, um, In my book, Odin punishes him by sending him to Earth in the form of a mortal child um, as an 11 year old, which I thought would be a punishment for a god, partly because there's lots of stuff about being 11 that's hard, like going to school and having to do what you're told and not having freedom. Um, But also because he's this very arrogant god, being forced to suddenly be in the life of a human child with a mortal body and all the things a mortal body does would be kind of extra bad for him. And it all kind of flowed from that, really. So so Loki is on Earth. He has to write in a diary. This diary is no ordinary diary, but it's a magical diary. So Loki is the god of mischief, but also the god of lies. Uh, so he's everyone knows he lies. So Odin decided to program this diary um, to stop him lying. So every time he lies in the diary, the... the the diary will interrupt in the voice of Odin and correct him.
0: I can definitely see some practical applications for that <laughs> invention.
1: <laughs> in, you know, nothing particular
0: is springing to mind, but yeah, that seems like a really useful thing to have. Yeah,
1: and uh, partly because, um, I don't know if your listeners will have come across the concept of the unreliable narrator. Uh, an unreliable narrator is when you're reading a book, you know that the, the basically that the the narrator is likely to tell lies or exaggerate. Um, So Loki is the ultimate unreliable narrator. However, you can believe some of what he says because it's being corrected. So, because if he was just completely lying all the time in a way, you wouldn't be able to be invested in the story because you wouldn't know which bits were true. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so it's him living on earth with uh, the the Norse God Thor, who is uh, the God of thunder. Odin's son is there with him basically to keep an eye on him and, he's also been given fake parents which are um the god Heimdall, who his normal job is basically he's the bouncer of, <laughs> of Asgard because he guards the rainbow bridge up to Asgard which is you know literally a ra- whenever a rainbow forms in the sky that's that's as that's the bridge to Asgard um however he's down on earth to keep an eye on Loki and I I chose him because I felt like he is he is basically a kind of bodyguard slash bouncer, so he felt like a good person. Also, because in the Norse mythology, at the end of the world, he kills Loki. And I thought that would be quite a good tension to have in the background of like, can they form a family relationship or will they literally kill each other? Um, and then his fake mother is a giant called Hurricane. She's not really in the myths all that much, um, but I just loved the sound of her because what it says in the myths, she's, um, she attends a, a god funeral and all the gods are too sad to pull the funeral boat because Vikings... You know, bury people in boats and set fire to them. Um, so, because she's very strong, she was required to pull the the boat and set fire to it. Um, but she also um, has an unusual mode of transport in that she rides on the back of a wolf, and instead of using kind of leather reins, she uses snakes. Obviously. And so I just wanted to explore her more because she sounded amazing, <laughs> and I've sort of ended up drawing her as a bit of a like noir detective, Scandinavian woman, quite kind of grumpy looking, but also she's actually quite kind. So he has this fake family on earth and he has to learn to be good and he is terrible at it. So essentially the plot is Loki tries to be good and is very bad at it. So he continues in his naughty ways, but he does manage to do things like form friendships and start understanding what it might mean to be good but as my editor said I can't make him too good in the first book because then what happens in the second (laughs) (laughs) very very wise I I think it's about time we got to know Loki your,
0: your version of Loki a little better and I think the perfect way to do that would be if you could read a little bit from the book for us are you up for that? yes excellent in which case I'm going to press pause on the recording for a moment while you grab your copy of the book and find the right page then we'll come back and dive into the story Welcome back to this episode of Author in Your Classroom with our very special guest, Louis Stoll. Now, Louis, you're going to read a bit from the first book in your series about Loki, the Norse trickster god. Before you start, perhaps you could explain a little about where we are in the story. You've given us the background, but this is is quite early on in the story, I think. So listeners can put themselves in the picture.
1: Yes, I'm going to read from chapter two. So what you've missed in chapter one is Loki has been sent down to Earth, literally thrown down the rainbow bridge, splat, landed on the floor, currently in the body of a mortal boy. He's discovered that um, he's here for a while. Um, He's got to learn to be good. Um, He's been given his mission by Odin and that he's going to be living in this, what he thinks of as a hovel. It's actually quite a nice human house, (laughs) but obviously he's used Asgard, which is basically a palace. Yes, yeah, so he's going to be here. He's kind of not exactly made his peace with it, but he's going to start this whole game. I slept badly in the lumpy human bed. Where are my pillows of dove feathers and my eiderdown down knit together with soft, fluffy clouds? Say what you like about Asgard, and I often do, but its soft furnishings are second to none. The day got no better. Instead of my usual breakfast of honey and ambrosia and roast meats, I was forced to sit at a tiny table, elbow to elbow with Thor, and offered a sad box emblazoned with the words, Treats." I came to understand that this was not a matter of bad spelling, but an attempt to be amusing. Reader, the contents of the box were not treats, misspelled or otherwise. It was like eating grit coated in sugar. For some reason that I cannot comprehend, They were drowned in milk until they went soggy, giving them the consistency of furry snot. Apparently, many humans eat this every day, not as part of a divine punishment, even. It seems I have a lot to learn before I understand mortals. To be fair, I have a lot to learn before I'll understand Thor, too. It baffles me that he's the one the gods admire. I once caught him cutting his toenails at the feasting table. I say caught him but actually he cried out behold my mighty toenails see how they sail across the feasting hall (laughs) so i didn't have to do a lot of detective work there after our pathetic breakfast hurricane walked us to the terrible place humans called school picture a prison full of cruel guards where the corridors smell of cleaning chemicals and despair and you're about halfway to truly understanding the nature of mortal school we weren't allowed to travel there by wolf because A. I'm not allowed to ride the wolf after last time and B. Humans would run away in fear and I would lose me virtue points. Besides, Hirakin has disguised her wolf as a dog. What self-respecting god would ride a dog? But we did take it with us on our walk to school. Hirakin said it would help us make friends. This seems an absurd statement, but indeed, when we reached the school gates, a number of children clustered around us to stroke the dog. Humans are so weird about dogs. They don't seem to realise that dogs are like wolves, but pathetic. A wolf, one, tears out throats, two, howls at the moon in the dead of night, three, looks cruel and awesome, whereas a dog, one, never rips out throats, two, sucks up to humans... Three, whines and makes annoying yappy sounds. Four, who's on the floor? Even Thor doesn't do that. Well, maybe once. Hurricane has named her wolf in dog form Fido. Giants are known for many things. Fighting, magic and trickery, building very big walls, shape-shifting. But imagination is definitely not one of their top qualities. Once Hirakin had turned around and walked the dog away, we joined a flood of mortal children flowing in through the school gates, all yelling and screaming and laughing. We followed the throng into an empty outside area within the school walls, a sort of courtyard or perhaps a pen to contain these feral beings. They all yelled and fought and tussled like animals. Thor would no doubt fit right in here. As we walked through this holding pen, which later I discovered was called a playground, many stopped to look at us, or rather at Thor. It pains me to say that all heads turned to look at him. Girls giggled as he passed. Boys stood a little straighter. Some giggled too. Only one figure didn't give him a glowing look of approval. A tall, well-built girl with blonde plaits and a grim expression. She glared at both of us as we passed. I don't know if we'd done something to offend her or if that was just her face. It was a familiar look for me. The same look had been on the goddess Sif's face after she discovered I'd cut off her hair. In fact, it was the look every god gave me at least once a month, usually after I'd done something especially witty and amusing. I don't know why this girl was giving me the look. I hadn't done anything to her other than walk past being generally magnificent. Unless she was jealous of my magnificence. It was probably that. Correction. It was not that.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Louis. The book is so much fun to read and to listen to, actually, and and I do think a lot of that has to do with Loki's voice, the voice you've found for him, and how completely deluded he is about almost everything. I have to say, when I started reading the book, one of my first thoughts was how rare. It is possibly even unique. I'd I'd need to check that to have a children's book essentially narrated by a grown up, albeit one trapped in a child's body. But the more I got to know Loki, the more I realised he's thousands of years old, but he's not really a grown up, is he? (laughs) Maybe that's why it works.
1: (laughs) I mean, I actually see that none of the gods are really grown ups um it that's how kind of I view them um because part of what makes you grow up is having to deal with difficult circumstances, and the gods you know lie around having kind of ambrosia fed to them uh you know magically, so I think when you've got that kind of magical paradise to live in, you're not really forced to kind of deal with all of the boring things that grown ups have to deal with that actually kind of forces them to i guess. Well, from a point, child's point of view, become really tedious, but from a grown-up's <laughs> point of view, actually kind of learn a few life skills. So Loki's never had to learn how to do his taxes or, you know, pay pay for his milk or anything. <laughs> um, and But neither is Thor, neither is Odin. I think yeah. none of them are really all that grown-up. So uh, writing um, Heimdall and Hirkin, for instance, they're kind of learning how to be grown-ups themselves in in a different way. I mean, mind you, I think Hurricane is the only grown-up because as a giant, they don't have such an easy life. I, I love that they learn how to be grown-ups by
0: by doing the gardening yeah, <laughs>
1: and, and, go, and going for an enforced drive in the car. Yeah, and reading parenting manuals as oh, well. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, which I have a lot of fun coming up with the titles for those.
0: I wonder if writing, talking about Loki's voice, if writing is sometimes a little bit like being an actor in the sense that, did you have to get into character before you could write Loki?
1: Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, I think different people write in different ways. Um, But for me, it's very much about hearing the voice to an extent, you know, I hear little phrases here and there which give me Loki's voice and sometimes give me the direction of where he's going in the plot. Because I do, I mean, I do do a lot of of planning, which isn't, you know, in Loki's voice. It's just like, okay, I need to get him to hear. I need this to happen. I need this to happen at this point. But once I've got that all kind of written down, then, then I can kind of little phrases bubble up, little moments within his head. Um, so, yes, I think there is an element of acting there. And I definitely think when I'm reading it back to myself, I do read it in a different voice than my own. And um, I actually just went to the audio recording for for book two. Um, and it was so fascinating hearing the actor reading it because um in some ways, he did things exactly as I imagined, but some of the voices he did quite differently, yeah. but brilliantly. So he did Heimdall as this kind of like, I don't know, he's like right like that, um, <laughs> and uh, quite a tough guy. And I and I think like I think in my head his voice was a bit gentler, but actually I really liked it, and now. I think now when I'm writing Heimdall, I might hear that. So it's, it's interesting how it kind of feeds back in. That is nice
0: when readers' experience of your story influences how you think about the story. That That's quite mm, exciting, I guess.
1: Definitely. I, I sometimes think readers sometimes notice things that writers don't notice. So um, I actually studied English at university and a lot of it I wasn't that interested in the kind of theoretical stuff. But there was this one theory where basically the idea is it's the readers that make... meaning like basically readers are the true tellers of the story because they're the ones that put it all together and decide what it's going to mean what it's going to mean to them and I think I really that really resonated with me because I think until a book is read it doesn't mean anything you know and what I think it means is sort of irrelevant because actually a reader could get something completely different out of it and that's still true and real even if I never meant to put it in there they they've seen something I haven't.
0: I love that and I hope our listeners are as excited about that prospect as I am because I think that gives you a, a whole new sense of, of power as a reader of a book that you're mm. helping to, to shape the story by giving it meaning. Um, now, of course, this is a podcast and not video, so we, have, we haven't we have got any visuals. So what our listeners won't know unless they've picked up your book for themselves is that it is full of drawings doodles comic scripts visual gags all done by you Mm. now you've written a lot of books but this is the first one that you've illustrated yeah
1: as well as written what did that add to the whole experience for you it's interesting so i've done so i've done illustrated books illustrated by someone else non-illustrated books and now obviously illustrating my own and I mean, I actually really love collaborating with an illustrator. It's really fun. It Again, they bring things to the story that you wouldn't necessarily put in there. But what I enjoy about doing it myself is I have much more of a sense of how the word and the image are going to work together. Um, and it is like a little dance between the pictures and the words. And as I'm editing, once I've already drawn the pictures, I may change the words to go with the pictures better. Because quite often I'll put something in the text, but then when I start drawing, I'm like, well, this is absolutely unnecessary because I'm going to show it. (laughs) So, um, you know, you don't need, you don't need to repeat what's in the text in the picture and vice versa. And I always get very frustrated when illustrations don't show something extra. Um, I always want them to tell more of the story than, than just the words. Um, I mean, I read a lot of comics and obviously that's the case where, you know, the speech balloon is not just repeating what's in the picture unless they're doing it for comic effect, you know, kind of explicitly spelling out, I am lifting my hand now for some kind of (laughs) You know, joke, but yeah, basically, I want that image and that word, and the words and images to work together, and also quite often to have the image flip what's in the text on its head. So Loki is always talking about how he doesn't really care about anything and how he just thinks he's amazing, um, but his insecurities are much more likely to creep in in the pictures. Yeah. So I've 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 got a dream sequence in book two, and and that has showing yeah you know, it's largely visual and it definitely shows things he's worried about that he would never admit to out loud and um just little kind of doodles in the margins where he's sort of clearly showing a bit more vulnerability but he he's not saying that in words yeah the
0: the, the book is it's it's definitely very funny not to mention if i may say so rather rude and naughty <laughs> in places but as we get closer to the end of Loki's allotted time on Earth, something happens, and it actually it becomes quite moving, and there's there's, there's definite peril in there, and, and the time is ticking down, and he's edging closer towards understanding something quite important about what it means to be good and what it means to be human. And, he's, and he starts showing real feelings. And you have said, by the way, in public, that you would never write a book about people sitting around and talking about their feelings.
1: <laughs> well, he's not sitting around having feelings. He's, ah, a technicality. He's in the middle of a pitched battle having feelings. <laughs> this is true.
0: This is very true. <laughs> Was it harder to write the the sad, serious bits than, than than straightforward funny? Or is it just different?
1: Definitely harder. I think that's a lot harder for me to access. I think funny comes quite naturally. It doesn't require much kind of self-reflection. Whereas I think I'm, you know, with Loki's journey through each book, I, I am having to think about his moral journey, like, you know, becoming a better person, but also what that means for his emotions and his insecurities, which he has a lot of, but... But I love writing a character who has so little self-knowledge, like he doesn't know his own feelings. He doesn't know really what's going on beneath the surface. And that allows you to get comedy from the feelings. So you've kind of got this sense of, actually, he's got a lot going on in his in his heart that he's never ever going to speak of unless he's forced to yeah and i think you know over the books because there's going to there's going to be you know multiple books it good potentially he could move closer to that but he's always going to shy away from it
0: i had a fantastic time with this book and i I would definitely recommend it to all our listeners and sooner rather than later too so that they can be ready for the next Mm -hmm. installment coming out in august um i am going to ask you for a few hints as to what we might expect in that book you're you've already given us a couple so I'm going to see what else I can eke out of you. (laughs) But before I do, I would like to remind all the grown-ups listening that we produce a free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom so children can put what they've heard into action and produce their own brilliant writing inspired by our guest and what we've been talking about. You can find all the packs, including the one for this episode, at plazoom.com. Details are in the episode notes. Okay, Louis, I'm just going to pause the recording again for a moment so everyone can add plazoom.com to their bookmarks list and then we'll be right back for some more chatting. <music> Welcome back once again to Author in Your Classroom featuring Louis Stoll. Author of Loki: A Bad God's Guide to Being Good amongst many other fantastic books. So Louie, as we we may have mentioned once or twice, there's a second book coming out very
1: soon now. Are you excited? I'm very excited. Yeah. It's a strange process of writing because, um as I said, writing and publishing are two very different things. <laughs> um, and whenever you've been writing a book, the one that you're writing at the moment isn't coming out forever. So, book two, I actually wrote quite a long time ago now. And so, it's sort of when it comes out, I have to remind myself everything that's in it. <laughs> um, and I, I keep reading lines and I'm like, I just don't remember writing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, I'm kind of a process of re or sort of getting back into the story now as, as, as publication approaches. Um, so, this one is about a crime. Um, so, Thor's hammer go, miss, goes missing. And Loki is accused of stealing it. On this occasion, he did not commit the crime, which is quite rare for him. It's nearly always him, <laughs> so no one believes him. So he has to go and prove his innocence. So it's a little bit of a detective story. Only Loki is a terrible, terrible detective. <laughs> so he's, um, if you've read the murder most unladylike story, he's Absolutely. kind of the opposite of Daisy. <laughs> he's uh, he's the anti-Daisy. He's just he jumps to stupid conclusions. He doesn't, you know, do anything. Logical, He just sort of like pings around the world, basically deciding people are guilty because he wants them to be. <laughs> but yes, it, is, it was fun to write a story where he was sort of in the right, but he still manages to find ways to be in the wrong. <laughs> um, it's um, there's lots of things I can't say about it because they're spoilery, but it has some new characters. <laughs> oh, it, it sounds like great fun! I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, and lots of horses. Um, so partly it's set at a stables because Valerie's a big rider, and um, so I sort of had to draw a lot of horses, which I I often joke about because horses are you know officially one of the hardest things to draw. I think maybe horses and French horns and bicycles, but. Um, <laughs> Uh so but then I think I relaxed into it realising I can just draw a really bad horse and as long as someone can recognise that it is a horse, then I'm fine. So I think that's actually a tip for me, from me to um the illustrators out there. If you're drawing in a you know cartoony style, it really doesn't matter if your drawing is accurate at all, as long as your reader viewer can tell what it is. So, you know, give it four legs and a long face and then it's a horse
0: <laughs> on hooves. <laughs> and then becomes part of the story. No matter how much you may enjoy it, for an author, um, writing is a job. And like any job, there are going to be some bits that are more appealing than others. Now, I know our listeners love hearing about what life as a writer is really like. So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you, what's the best bit of the job for you? But perhaps more excitingly, what's the worst?
1: <laughs> what's the worst? Uh Okay, so there's the worst because it's the most boring, which is because I work for myself. I've got to ask people to pay me, so I have to send things called invoices. So basically, it's paperwork. I hate <laughs> it so much. I hate it. I hate it. I don't know why. I just, just, it's just my my nemesis. Um, basically, anything methodical and slow, I'm bad at. But the the you know. I guess the <laughs> the thing I sort of love to hate is when I get a really difficult question at school, at a school visit, because I do a lot of school visits, and every now and then someone will ask me something that's so perceptive and so profound, I just sort of my mind goes completely blank. Because I feel like, again, like I was saying, like readers bring meaning to the to the books they also make you look at life in a different way someone at a school visit asked me what I would have done if I'd um, not been a writer and I sort of ended up going down this like rabbit hole of this alternative life I could have lived where I'd be an engineer (laughs) Um, and I was imagining it in quite a lot of detail so actually I mean I say it's the worst I actually really enjoyed it but it was it's quite kind of it's quite disconcerting because you know, you sort of go expecting people to ask you where do you get your ideas from and then suddenly you're having this kind of like confessional about what your life could have been in a different world. So um uh yeah, kind of parallel universes like um everything everywhere all at once.
0: So if our if our listeners had any challenging questions of their own for you, do, do they have to wait until you come to their school or is there a way that they could uh, get in touch and ask you?
1: No, no. I mean, um if you get their teacher to tweet at me, um ah. I'm I'm happy to answer teachers tweets or if if you want to just get your parent to email me um my my there's a contact form on my website do you ever have days when it seems you just don't have
0: the words you need to write because this is something that happens to our listeners sometimes they're in school and they're given a bit of paper and the teacher says right you need to write this thing now and and sometimes you're just not in a righty sort of a place so
1: what do you yeah. do when that happens um, well, if I'm on deadline, I've got to do it anyway. So I <laughs> just sit down until it's done. Um, if I'm not on a very tight deadline, I will just not work that day. So I will go and do something else. Because um, I think so, um, obviously you can't do that in a school classroom setting. <laughs> You've probably got to write when your teacher says write. But think about that as the deadline. And I think what I do then is I've started this sort of trick with myself where I say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try and write the worst thing I can on purpose. I'm going to try and write something that makes no sense. Basically, just to put one word in front of another because you can always make words better once they're on the page, but you can't edit nothing. So I think I I give that advice a lot to writers who are starting out and feel a bit like stuck and self-conscious and like they're not good enough. And because if you try to be bad, sometimes you'll come up with genius because actually your brain's really flowing and you're not thinking about it too much. So, you know, I literally sit there typing like sausage, sausage rhubarb, Um, (laughs) but then I'll be like, "Mm, what could Loki do with a sausage? And then (laughs) then you're away. And I think it's often it's sort of, something I call getting up in my head basically if I'm too aware of what I'm writing it's harder to write whereas if I try to be um unself-conscious, you know so there's something called free writing where you literally you just kind of write your internal monologue which might be just like I can see a desk and there's someone sitting next to me and tonight I want to have this for tea and what's for Christmas what I going to do for Christmas and then you might actually realize you're writing something good after a while like normally the first bit isn't but um Uh, but also I think sometimes it's about approaching something in a new way so often where I get stuck isn't so much the writing as the editing because my editor will say oh you need to change this for this reason then I'll agree Um, but then I get stuck with it but what I try to do is I sometimes go back to the sort of ignore what I've actually written and then just write it again from from scratch Um, and sometimes again that will get me unstuck Um, or because a lot of my books are, you know, illustrated, I will draw it instead of writing it. So sometimes getting, you know, putting down your ideas in a different medium first will get you there. Or yeah, draw it as a diagram or some some other kind of form. Or actually my top tip is talk to someone else if you're if you're allowed to in, in the classroom. But um sometimes talking through your ideas with someone can really help you actually know what you want to say because sometimes I don't know what I want to say until I've said it. So I think kind of having someone you can bounce ideas with like a friend you know again not in the classroom where you're not supposed to talk but like you know at break or whatever you can have a chat um and sometimes they'll spot something you didn't spot in your own idea
0: i think that is also useful because we can get it in our head that that writing is is a solitary occupation and you sit alone at your desk and the ideas appear in your in your mind from nowhere but a lot of it is reacting to what's around you isn't it it's reacting to what you see mm. and what you hear and also you can you can make those interactions as you say you can speak to your friend or or you can draw a picture and then and then kick those ideas yeah
1: and in, in terms of where you get ideas from I think my um Obviously with Loki, I got my ideas from a book because Norse <laughs> mythology is written down. So I think sometimes reading is where you get your ideas yeah. and it may not be as literal as that. Like not everyone will be like, I'm going to do it based on this. But um, but I do think the more you read, the more you kind of understand how stories work, you get this kind of deep sense of the structure of things which means that your brain is much more likely to then create its own stories because you're used to, okay, well, this is what happens in the climax of a story. So your brain's like, oh, this could happen at the climax of the story, which is the you know, really exciting bit. I don't know, like uh, aliens could invade or whatever your story's about. Um, I mean, I tend to write the sort of stories where aliens would invade rather than the sort of <laughs> stories where you argue with your best friend. But actually, I guess Loki does both. <laughs> That's brilliant.
0: Thank you so much. And believe it or not, we've, we've come to the end of our, our time for this episode. Thank you so much for being a part of it. And of course, for writing such funny, brilliant books. Really looking forward to the next one and all, all the ones after that. It's going to be an exciting ride. Thank you for being part of the podcast today, Louis Stowell. Thank you. And thank you too to all our listeners. We've had a great time. We hope you have too. I'll be back soon with another author to welcome into your classroom. But in the meantime, keep reading, keep writing and keep those imaginations lively. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATs revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible, so please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen. With author in your classroom and plazoom.